Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Warning. This podcast contains discussions of violence and sex. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Something Wicked, a bonus series from the Three Ravens podcast all about historical monsters, maniacs and murderers from across the world of folklore. My name's Martin Vaux. I'm a storyteller, writer, and English romanticism obsessive, and I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime and all dark arts, Eleanor Condon. Bonjour, mammy. <laughs> Just dropping a little Francais in there, because based on his name, at least, I am guessing we're talking about a French person today. We most certainly are. Specifically, we are talking about Gilles de Ray, the alleged root of the Bluebeard story, summoner of demons, marshal of the French army, and sometimes called the first serial killer in history. Well, I'm not sure first serial killer in history is a title most people would aspire to. <laughs> no. Still, let's get into it. What do we know about Gilles de Ray? When was he born, for example? Well, we actually don't know his exact birth date. This is because during the French Revolution, there was a concerted effort in France to destroy all records of the past, particularly church records, which in England provide a huge amount of historical information. Yet in France land registries and birth marriage and death records in particular all went up in smoke. Such a wild thing to have done. Think <laughs> of all that knowledge lost forever. Yep, it boggles the mind. Still, we think Gilles de Ray was born around 1405 in a castle in Champs-Tousset called 
the Black Tower. A suitably dark and shadowy start, and yep. also a solid new name for our home. <laughs> well, he was also a member of the House of Montmorency. Well, we do know a little bit about them, don't we? Yeah. I mean, they no longer exist, but they were one of the oldest French dynastic houses. Yeah, there are a few French houses that date from before the 10th century, such as the House of Bourbon, the House of Capet, and so on. The House of Valois, that one is very famous, but only arose later, while the House of Montmorency, aside from the House of Bourbon, is thought to have perhaps been the oldest French house, excluding those of the Robertian and Carolingian kings. And before them, we had the Merovingians and Charlemagne and a string of properly ancient Frankish kings. Yes. All super interesting. But still, to keep our focus on Gilles de Ray... Are we to presume that the House of Montmorency grew out of the Roman Empire? It's possible. Their territory is north of Paris, so part of what we might call Norman France, meaning those regions conquered and claimed by the Norse or Viking invaders, Norse men, known as Norman hence Normandy. And certainly it seems that the boundaries of the estates of the House of Montmorency were Roman, but really we can't be sure. It's all very muddy, isn't it? Mm. Gauls and Romans and Normans and Franks all kind of blended up together. Yeah. Still, Gilles is born into this old, powerful French dynasty. Do we know anything about his immediate family? Well, we know that he was orphaned around the age of 10. We're not 100% sure what happened to his mother, but it's thought that both she and Gilles de Ray's father died in 1415. His father was said to have died in some sort of gruesome hunting accident. We're not certain about exactly what happened, but it's generally believed Gilles saw his father die in this horrific fashion. And after that, he was raised by his maternal grandfather. Okay, and do we know much about this maternal grandfather? We do. His name was Jean de Crayon, and he was an absolutely brutal knight known for incredible military prowess. Just the kind of father a growing maniac needs. Indeed. Now, it's worth saying that Gilles de Ray's paternal grandfather died at Agincourt, and that he had been a very powerful lord himself, which means that when he was orphaned, Gilles de Ray becomes heir to two large contested regions of France. This gives him a vast fortune, although both are controlled by Jean de Crayon, this savage war leader who looks after the fiefdoms until Gilles comes of age. Well, now, this seems like a bad mix. <laughs> We've got Gilles having experienced early childhood trauma, being raised by a savage knight, heir to a big old stack of cash. It feels like he's destined to get into some scrapes. Well, it gets a lot darker than scrapes, I must say, so forewarned is forearmed. But one relatively innocuous scrape is that in 1420, Gilles' grandfather decides Gilles should get married. Naturally, although likely to consolidate power in this period of time. Yeah, exactly. In fact, Jean de Crayon decrees that Gilles should marry one of his cousins on his father's side, Catherine, to increase the lands within their power. Not nice. No, and the church was well against it on account of co-sanguinuity, i.e. they shared too much of the same family blood. Which they did, of course. Yeah, but Gilles didn't care. Oh. He went and abducted Catherine from her father's house with a troop of knights and then forced her into marriage, although the marriage was later annulled by the church due to accusations of Incest. Oh, no. Incest already. We're on <laughs> page one. We've barely even started. <laughs> yeah, not a good person, Gilles de Ray. Only it's worth saying that 
in that same year, 1420, so when he's still a teenager, Gilles de Ray also became a member of the French court. And at this time, France was ruled by Charles VI, a.k.a. Charles the Mad. Not to be confused with Charles the Bad, a no, completely different person. Completely different, We yeah. um, spoke about Charles the Mad in our Valentine's Day episode, didn't we? We did. Once known as Charles the Beloved, but uh, as the name suggests, he went crackers. He did. And Charles VI ruled France during a large chunk of the Hundred Years' War, going through periods of total insanity and violence and other periods of relative lucidity and calm. Mm. But notably, the French armies took quite the beating at Agincourt in 1415 at the hands of the English, after which Henry V was declared heir to France. A very significant moment in English history, although not remembered quite so fondly by our cousins across the channel. <laughs> no, still, Henry V's claim to the French throne was ratified in the Treaty of Troyes in 1420, the same year Gilles enters the court and is signed not by Charles the Mad, but by his wife. Yeah, if I remember rightly, she kind of ruled for him when he was a bit too mad, didn't she? Yeah, that's right. And many of the French houses were deeply unhappy with this, not least because there was a rival claimant to the French crown, Charles VI's son, also Charles. How helpful. Way <laughs> to make things more confusing, France. Thanks. <laughs> well, to make things easier, Charles the Mad Son was also known as the Dauphin. And it's worth noting that these Charleses Neither of them were particularly fussed about Gilles' incest. Really? No, they did not care. And because this marriage made Gilles even richer, and they liked the look of Gilles' army, they reversed the church's ruling, so the incestuous cousin marriage was all back on. Great. Yeah. <laughs> so this favour worked to the Dauphin's advantage because it was Gilles de Ray and his army which enabled said Dauphin to eventually become not just Charles VII, King of France, but also to be forever known as Charles the Victorious. I mean... With a name like Charles the Victorious, we can probably assume that he's the king under which the English claim to the French crown was, well, undermined, to say the very <laughs> yeah, least. Precisely that. But not for a while yet. So, young Gilles de Ray initially enters the court propelled by the favour of the Duke of Brittany, John de Montfort, also known as John the Wise. Wait, wait, de Montfort? Like Simon de Montfort? Exactly the same. The Simon de Montfort who led the Second Barons' War and the Oxford Parliaments and so on, he was John de Montfort's uncle. Wow. Yeah. Plus, it's also worth saying that, much like England, in addition to the Hundred Years' War, France was also riven by its own civil wars during this time. Brittany, which the de Montforts ruled, was a particularly contested region during the 14th century. And even into the 15th century, John V was constantly under threat from the House of Pontievre. Being a noble was quite difficult in the 1400s, wasn't it? I mean, you yeah. might think it's all plain sailing and eating roast goose, but actually it was quite challenging. Yeah, unless you had a huge army and were ready to use it, most definitely. And so John de Montfort was kidnapped for a while and his enemies kept moving him around between castles until his wife, Joan, led a series of sieges and rescue missions, missions which the young Gilles de Ray took part in. Blimey. So, first thing, well done to all these wives saving <laughs> yes. their husbands. More emphasis on that, please. Authors of history books. Yes. But also, are we talking about a double war happening in France in this period? Yeah, double, if not triple war. Triple war? Well, between 1407 and 1435, there was also the Armagnac-Burgundian Civil War, which saw these two factions, the Armagnacs, representing the so-called 
ancient Frankish ways of doing things, life rooted in agriculture and traditional Catholicism. They were based in the south and they feuded with the Burgundians, who were more minded to make alliances with the English and trade with Flanders and the Low Countries, particularly for wool and cloth. And this is how we ended up with the Avignon Papacy and ultimately the Western Schism. Oh, yes. Well, we were talking about Alice Kittler on last month's Something Wicked, weren't we? And the Mm. Avignon Papacy just seemed like this crazy period in history. Oh, most definitely. And just to remind everyone, you had a long sequence of popes in France and popes in Rome, so-called popes and anti-popes. Again, I refer people to the excellent podcast Pontifacts for more detail on the lives and doings of these various popes and anti-popes. But still, by the time Gilles de Ray entered the French court, having earned some martial prowess and experience, as well as patronage from John de Montfort, this schism had kind of closed. Still, the reason I mention it is to emphasise Gilles de Ray's life takes place against this backdrop of conflict in all quarters. Yeah, religious conflict between Catholic factions, international conflict with the Hundred Years' War, internal conflict with civil wars. It is a heady mix. And one in which I'm guessing nobody really knew where they stood. Well, pretty much. Life in France at this time was brutal and confusing. And what basically made the difference for a given individual was whether they could defend themselves from attack. And the best means of defence was, predictably, to attack. <laughs> right. Well, it sounds from what you said like Gilles de Ray was fairly well equipped to go on the attack. Mm. Well, not least because, well, he'd started his military career as a teenager and had rather deep pockets. Yes. At the time he enters court, Gilles had all this territory through marriage and inheritance. Plus, the French economy was in the pits and the king was mad. Then the Burgundian faction had conquered Paris, making an alliance with the English. So Henry V was the heir apparent. What a pickle. Yeah. Then, in 1422, the year Gilles' marriage to his cousin is ratified by the Dauphin, both Charles the Mad and Henry V died within months of one another. Uh-oh, succession crisis. Yep. Will it be Kendall? <laughs> <laughs> well, this total mess meant that, theoretically, the nine-month-old baby, Henry VI, was heir to the French throne. But the Dauphin, well, he wasn't going to take that line down. No, I can imagine not. I said just a duel, one-on-one, me and the baby. <laughs> well, thankfully, that isn't what happened. <laughs> would have been quicker, though. <laughs> Fewer people would have died. Still, oh, all this messy succession stuff must have put Gilles de Ray in quite a complicated position, Mm. especially because, technically speaking, if his home territories are in northern France, that's in the middle of Burgundian slash English territory. Well, the House of Montmorency had its lands in northern France, so north of Paris, but Gilles de Ray's maternal grandfather's territories, aka Jean de Crayon's lands, and his wife's, They were all around Nantes, so just south of Brittany. And that's all sort of Western France, below the line of the River Loire. Yeah, exactly. Which means that Gilles de Ray is trained and raised and engages in his first decade or so on the battlefield in highly contested territories throughout Brittany and then right on the border between the northern bit, controlled by the Burgundians, and the southern bit, controlled by the Armagnacs. So does all this mean that his northern territories are more or less lost? Well, kind of. Under Charles VI, they were theoretically accessible to him and he did receive some money for them. But once Charles the Mad died and the Dauphin launched into more sustained fighting against the Burgundians and the English, from then on, Gilles is cut off from his family's most ancient estates. I see, meaning he's got 
plenty of reasons to roll up his sleeves and get clip-clopping on his horse yes. and chop-chopping with his sword. <laughs> yes, lots of clip-clops and chop-chops. In fact, he raises <laughs> five... That would be the subtitle of this episode. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Clip-clops and chop-chops. Yeah. So he raises five companies of soldiers and then leads a pretty damn successful, if very brutal, campaign north. His forces don't quite get up to his family's ancient lands, but they do reclaim a ton of territory, getting right the way up to Le Mans, where... Alas for Gilles, he fails to take Le Mans from the English. Still, Le Mans is quite a long way north of the Loire. It is, and as a consequence, Gilles de Ray is very much seen as a war hero when he returns to the court of Charles VII. At this point, he must still be pretty young. What is he, 20? Yeah, 20 to 25, and he's known within the court to be handsome, gifted, very well-dressed, he's had a good education, and, unlike most French lords at the time... He's paying his private army very well, keeping them equipped with up-to-date weapons and armour. He's kind of the poster boy, frankly, in the resurgent French court under Charles VII. Very interesting, because right now, taking aside a little incestuous marriage, he seems almost chivalric, <laughs> yeah. leading noble battles and the like. I'm guessing this does not last? Well, it does all turn horrific, and I mean genuinely horrific, before too long. Still, before that, things kick up to a whole other gear because player two enters the game. Character select, Joan of Arc. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so Joan of Arc is, of course, the patron saint of France. Yes. A pretty big deal by anyone's measure. Absolutely. She's about seven years younger than Gilles de Ray, born around 1412. And out of nowhere, it seems Joan of Arc appears and becomes this holy maid and one of the prime movers in the French army. It's a wild story, isn't it? It really is. Because Joan of Arc is born near Gilles de Ray's lands in the contested Dormremy region. It's an area that's theoretically Burgundian territory, but the populace was loyal to the Almanac cause. So Joan grows up there in rural poverty. Her dad's a farmer. She spins wool. It's all very close to the ground. Only suddenly in 1425, her village is raided by the Burgundians and boom, she has a vision. I mean, she's what? 12 or 13 at the time <laughs> and she says she has a vision yes she says she has a vision and a vision of the archangel michael no less i mean one of the best if you're going to have a vision yeah Big sword slays dragons quite the chapter have on your side the archangel michael well indeed and then joan has another vision of him and another and another and before long she's known around dormremy as this holy maid regularly visited by saint michael and she says about spinning prophecies that everyone thinks are pretty amazing. Well, there was a prophecy already, wasn't there, from our old friend, Geoffrey of Monmouth, that invaluable source yeah. of accuracy, who famously <laughs> said that the wizard Merlin had foretold that a miraculous virgin would come and lead the world to peace. Yes, exactly right. And Joan very much hitched her wagon to that prophecy. She said, in effect, I am the maiden who was prophesied by Merlin. And people went for it. They certainly did. Then Joan famously runs away from home, dresses like a boy, and manages to get herself into the Dauphin's court. I do find this part of her story quite amazing, because... Charles VII knows she's coming, doesn't he? He does. Word has reached the court that this holy maid is on her way disguised as a boy. So Charles VII famously does a clever trick. He dresses as a commoner and puts someone else on the throne to try to trick 
Joan. Only, famously, Joan does not fall for it. She picks the Dauphin out of the crowd and everyone's rightfully amazed. Yeah, she does. But, fun fact, guess who Charles VII put on the throne to pretend to be king? Oh, who? His dark and shadowy murdering knight, the one and only Gilles de Rey. Whoa! Yep. So then begins this period where you kind of have the Dauphin elevating these two people, Gilles de Rey, his handsome, brutal, murderous black knight, and then Joan of Arc, his ethereal, mystical, virginal white knight. And boy, do they have their work cut out for them because the English are on the rampage. I bet they are. And I'm going to have to ask what the English are actually trying to do because yes. my knowledge of this entire episode in history is entirely based around Shakespeare's Henry the Sixth Part One. Sure, sure. So, um, <laughs> because, I mean, if I was in their shoes, the English, my priority would be killing the Dauphin. Mm-hmm. I'd do that and frankly, you'd, you'd end the whole conversation, wouldn't yeah, you? most definitely. So, in essence, if you can imagine, the Burgundian slash English territories run all the way across northern France along the River Loire, which sort of bisects France. Then the Armagnacs and Charles hold the territory on the other side of the river to the south, with one of the key cities bridging the Loire being Orléans. And so is the English strategy to take Orléans? It is. They marched south, biffed Orléans and took that, then planned to proceed south to take Bourges, which is where the Dauphin had his court. Only the Dauphin now has his dream team of Gilles with his fancy battle-hardened army and Joan the Holy Maid. Yes. Light and dark, working together, enemies to lovers, a magical combination. (laughs) I love it. Well, it is a magical combination, or so it seems. And we'll be back with details about how this light and dark tag team worked, as well as some genuinely horrific details of Gilles de Rey's latter-day crimes, from summoning demons to mass-scale child murder, right after this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, Martin, that was a genuine cliffhanger. (laughs) The English have claimed Orléans. France's fate hangs in the balance. But we've got Gilles de Rey, a charming nutcase with a private army, and Joan of Arc joining forces to reclaim the city. What happens next? Well, first off, the Dauphin was feeling a bit sweaty about Bourges being taken. So he legged it, moved the court to Chinon. And then, yeah, suddenly it seems he has God on his side. So he sends Joan and Gilles to capture 
Orléans. Blimey. And does Joan have any military experience at all? Absolutely none. She was a farmer's daughter. People don't think she could even read. And honestly, she was an absolute strategic liability. (laughs) I mean, this is very well recorded, but basically, Gilles was all about gradual campaigning, conquering forts, consolidating, then moving on. But Joan believed that she couldn't die until she'd helped free France from English tyranny. She thought she was immortal. Yeah, pretty much. So she just kept riding ahead. She relentlessly attacked forts, sometimes with just a ragtag band of a dozen or so warriors. And time and again, Gilles basically had to come and rescue her. And when he did, his army normally also managed to claim the fort that Joan had blundered up to in the first place. I want to watch the TV series of this (laughs) or read a sort of young adult version of this amazing friendship with this poor incompetent woman who I think didn't she get shot with a crossbow on one of these missions she did shot with a crossbow on a raid saved by guess who (laughs) Gilles de Ray he literally (laughs) rode into the fray and saved her riding her back out again so her wound could be treated pretty epic on his part yep although Gilles was absolutely intent that Joan be kept well away from all the war councils and battle planning the whole time in spite of which people in the French countryside heard about Joan and these victories. So the army swelled and swelled and things started looking rather dicey for the English. I love the idea that Gilles de Ray is this hardened warrior yes. leaning over a map, doing battle planning, and then he sort of just turns around and goes, oh no, where's Joan? Guillaume, where's Joan? You were meant to be watching her for God's sake, where is she? Oh no, oh no, look, on the horizon, she's attacking another town. Right, come on lads, grab your helmets, let's go save her again. Yeah, well, that's pretty much what kept happening. Still, the word spread to the English who heard that this terrifying army led by Gilles de Ray now had a witch accompanying them and that she was helping them win battles through magic. Oh, excellent. So to the French, Joan is a kind of holy virgin, albeit a little bit incompetent with battle planning. Yes. But to the English, she is a witch. Yeah, exactly. And so worried were the English about Joan's powers of witchcraft that they literally packed up and abandoned Orléans, ceding it to the Dauphin's forces. Madness. I suppose we can therefore say that Joan of Arc really is responsible for the Dauphin claiming Orléans. Oh, yeah. That's why she's regarded as a national hero in France. And after that success, there was even more fuss made by the Dauphin about her prophecies and magical powers. She kind of became a mascot for the army, which was largely formally controlled by Gilles de Ray, and he was duly made a member of the Royal Council. He's doing very well, isn't he, from a social climbing perspective? Definitely. He and Joan also helped reclaim Pate, after which he was made Marshal of the French armies. And perhaps most importantly, he was one of the three lords who brought the Dauphin, the holy oil with which Charles was officially crowned King of France. Wow. I mean, that's about as close to ultimate power as anyone can get. Yeah, he's riding high for sure. But then it all goes wrong. And I mean, Gilles can't really be blamed for this one, as 
basically riding high on Joan's visions, the newly crowned Charles VII King of France then launches a massive campaign to try and reclaim Paris. Bad plan, Charles. Not a good idea. Yeah, as I imagine most people know, this didn't exactly go splendidly for the French. It did not. Old Charles VII had to retreat, didn't he? He did, and Joan of Arc didn't like that at all. She continued to believe that holy war against the English was the solution to every problem, which it was not. No, I mean, from what I remember, Charles kind of tried to keep her captive after that, didn't he? Very much so. He considered her a fanatic. But Joan kept escaping from captivity and trying to lead untrained militias (laughs) against English positions. These, of course, failed time and again, mostly because we can say with some confidence she didn't have Gilles de Ray's army backing her up. And eventually Charles just sold her to the English, didn't he? He did. He kept having to deal with all these little battles she was failing at. So eventually he decided, in pursuit of diplomatic solutions with the English, that the best thing to do was trade Joan of Arc to his enemies. And once traded, Joan was given a good old-fashioned witch trial and then burned at the stake. Ugh, nasty. Although... She was quite silly, wasn't she? Alas, yes. I mean, she's remembered as a French national hero, and I respect that she did throw herself into all sorts of danger in the name of the Dauphin and France in this righteous way. Yeah, very brave, if a bit misguided. Yep, and she was a phenomenon, but she was also a bit of a no-no and very much responsible for her own undoing, even if what happened to her was utterly utterly ghastly. Yeah, I mean, nobody should ever, ever be burned at the stake. No. But I have to ask, what was Gilles de Ray up to while all that was happening to his old buddy Joan? Well, without a war to fight for pretty much the first time in his life, Gilles was at a bit of a loss. So he did, for the first significant time, live with his wife. She quickly bore him a daughter, Marie. But then Gilles spent the rest of his life completely apart from his wife and daughter. And things started to get capital D dark. As if war and slaughter and witch burnings weren't dark enough already. (laughs) No, fair point. Still, basically, Gilles didn't want to disband his army, so he kept shoveling his fortune into that. And he also hired loads of spies to go and keep track of enemy troop movements, just in case war broke out again, you know. Yeah, which I imagine he kind of wanted as it was his purpose. Yeah, he did. But very quickly, he ran out of money. Paying for an army isn't cheap. So he started selling his lands and also took up a life of banditry. What? (laughs) He became a thief? And kidnapper. Oh. In essence, he kept raiding anyone travelling through his lands. He attacked other lords, took hostages, ransomed them back, including the king's mother. Oh, dear. (laughs) I mean, he'd been built for war and couldn't give it up. So, without the English to battle, he just kept starting fights with other lords within France. Silly man. (laughs) And by this point, I'm supposing the king doesn't want anything to do with him as he kidnapped his mother. (laughs) No, especially not after the mother ransoming thing. (laughs) So, after that, Gilles kind of concludes that there isn't any significant enemies left to question his power. And this is when he sinks deep, deep into depravity. Yikes. Yeah. Now, he's aided in his depravity by two priests, Eustache Blanchet and Francois Prelati, one French, one Italian. And from them, he drifted into the occult, in addition to child kidnapping and child murder. Mm, I mean, that's quite the leap 
from Marshal of the French Army and stand-in for the king yes. to child kidnapper. Well, the two things are strangely connected, or they were at first, in particular because working with Blanchet and Prelati, Gilles de Ray was looking for wealth. And so these two priests, who also happened to be alchemists and demonologists, they set about trying to summon a demon for de Ray who could give him vast wealth. Sounds concerning. Yeah, quite the understatement there. And we know quite a bit about this from the eventual trials. So the demon they summoned was called Baron, that's B-A-R-R-O-N, and basically in exchange for giving him gold, which Gilles needed to pay for his lifestyle, it was said he believed that Baron required Gilles to provide him with a steady flow of murdered children. Oh no, mm. and where did these children come from? Well, all over DeRay's territories. He had allies including his cousins, Gilles de Silet and Roger de Briqueville, and four servants, two men, Henriette Griard and Etienne Coriot. Coriot was also known as the Poisoner. And two women, Tiffane Branchu and Perrin Martin. Martin was also known as the Terror. Wow. These servants and allies provided Gilles with his steady supply of children, all of whom were boys. Creepy. So um, were the dark priests involved in these rituals too? Well, all told, the rituals were just kind of an excuse for him to engage in horrendous acts of murder and torture. His servants said Baron did serve their master, but Gilles de Ray minimised that in a testimony he ultimately gave in his trials. And people didn't question this at the time? Well, he seemed to have quite a cult around him. For example, he held lavish feasts and banquets at his castles where it was said all were welcome. He gave away food, clothes, money, all sorts to both rich and poor. And he also founded a church, the Church of the Holy Innocents, dedicated to the Feast of the Innocents, which has a grim connection to his crimes. Well, Holy Innocents Day is the feast dedicated to all the children who died in Herod's attempted cull of children, prompted by his search for Jesus. Indeed, and Gilles de Ray killed lots and lots of children. But he made this church incredibly lavish, stained glass, 50 staff, ornate vestments, a man he appointed bishop, plus special choir boy uniforms designed by Gilles de Ray himself. And I'm guessing these choir boys had a pretty horrid time at de Ray's hands? Yeah, it's well recorded that he was a serial child abuser, including of the choir boys at this lavish personal church, the Holy Innocents at Mashkul. And one of the most horrendous things about this church is that, although it was said to be as lavish as a cathedral. It existed outside the church proper, so it wasn't a sacred space. He just built something that looked like a cathedral, <laughs> dressed it up like one, used it to lure people in, but it was never actually consecrated. Wow. So he ensnared people to go to these feasts and this church and made a play of being religious, but really was quite the opposite. Exactly. And we also know there were complaints made about, say, messengers sent to his castle who never returned, apprentices hired who disappeared, and any number of orphans or village children recruited and vanished by Gilles de Ray. But the theory is that they weren't so much vanished as abused and killed. Well, precisely. In his eventual unforced confession, Gilles de Ray said that he had killed over a hundred 
possibly more than 140 children, with many of the bodies burned. But he also admitted having kept trophies of his murders, including bits of bodies and sometimes whole bodies in the dungeons at his six castles. Oh my goodness. And over what sort of time period are we talking here? About a decade, roughly, through the 1430s. He said he started the process in 1432, and in 1440, the initial findings of the church investigations were published against him. Gross. And frankly, the degree of opulence in which he lived was enough to suggest he really was in league with dark forces. He had tons of art, manuscripts, ornately decorated great halls all throughout his fiefdom. He had these six castles he moved between, and each of them was extravagantly appointed. And it was also said that he called on Baron, this demon, to help him predict what his enemies were up to. But really, he was neck deep in all sorts of horrid, horrid stuff. But seemingly he got away with it for quite a long time. Yeah, and he did not keep a low profile. For example, in 1435, he went on a huge procession to Orléans, the seat of his great military success, and staged there a huge mystery play with, and check this, 20,000 lines of dialogue and 140 speaking parts. He paid for the whole thing at great expense and it ran every day for six days to commemorate his victory there. The money required to do something like that would have been immense. He was spending fortunes. He was, but the people loved him and loved this high-budget retelling of his victory and the victory of Joan of Arc. The whole event was said to have had a, a total cast of over 500 people all costumed with new costumes for each performance. Plus, it had tons of musicians, sets, props. To fund it, he sold all but two of his castles and took out huge loans. And by the end of it all, he was basically bankrupt. Wow. So after that, he doubles down on magic inviting loads of different alchemists and summoners to his remaining castles. These wizards all variously turned out to be charlatans, meaning that, quite quickly, things started to slide downhill for old Gilles. Well, you say old Gilles, but he would probably still be just in his 30s, wouldn't he? Yep, he died only aged 35. Wow, same age as me. (laughs) Have I wasted my life? I mean, I've never staged a gigantic high-budget retelling of the victory of Joan of Arc. I'm really glad that you're also not a mass murderer. (laughs) So, okay, aside from profligate spending, how did the wheels ultimately fall off the Gilles de Ray crazy train? Well, his undoing came when he took 60 knights and attacked a neighbouring lord who'd bought one of his castles from him to take it back. This lord sheltered in the church there, but Gilles de Ray didn't give a monkeys about ideas like sanctuary, so he attacked the church, struck the priest, and dragged the enemy lord outside before taking him hostage. And this triggered other lords to basically say... Enough is enough. Yeah, but does he still have a full-on army at this time? Well, not a full-on army, really. I mean, theoretically, he had 200 men on retainer, but he didn't have the money to pay them anymore, so they just weren't around to defend him. So John V of Brittany, the same John de Montfort we encountered earlier, now an old man, he basically worked with allies, including the Bishop of Nantes, who opened secret investigations into Gilles de Ray, while at the same time, 
time de Montfort worked with the king's armies to ambush de Ray at his castle at Mashkul. And then I'm guessing there was a trial. There was. And the church brought in a member of the Inquisition who was all ready to torture de Ray for a confession. But they didn't need to in the end. He readily admitted to having murdered, like I say, between 100 and 140 children, maybe more. He went into great detail about it. And his servants accounted for the disposal of over 40 children's bodies whose remains they specifically burned and moved out of castles before they were sold. Yeah, I can't imagine you'd want to sell a castle with a dungeon full of corpses. Can you imagine the yeah. simplest thing? <laughs> yeah, it would be tricky, wouldn't it? And also, DeRay confessed to acts of sodomy and heresy, such as the summoning of this demon, Baron. His servants... Henriette and Potu, they likewise confessed, although it's worth adding that unlike his servants, de Ray managed to get some concessions for his execution from the church. Such as? Well, initially he was excommunicated, but because he confessed, the Bishop of Nantes let him back into the church. And although the three men, de Ray and his male servants, were all sentenced to be hanged and then burned, de Ray was allowed to be hanged and lightly burned before his body was offered a good old Christian burial in a nice, clean patch of holy ground. So hold on, after all this, he still had a Christian burial? <laughs> yep, at Notre Dame de Carme, Pont l'Abbé, where his body remains. Madness. And apparently, his execution was quite the grand affair. He was processed out by priests, spoke to the crowd from the gallows and warned them all against being tempted by the devil. He was then executed first, meaning... Henriette and Poitou followed. When they were executed afterwards, hanged, sure, but then they were burned to ashes. That's horrendous. And again, so insane. How is it that the nobleman who's the guiltiest of guilty parties here gets a Christian burial while his servants didn't? Indeed. Especially as the details of what he did specifically to these children is also recorded and it is absolutely awful. He went into quite a bit of detail in his confession, which was said to have been like a piece of theatre performed in front of the assembled lords. For example, he said he liked to hang his victims on an iron hook, then would torture them before unhooking them. Then he'd act nicely towards them as if he was going to let them go. Then he would either break their necks, cut their throats or dismember and decapitate them all with a special sword he kept aside for just that purpose. That's absolutely psychotic. Oh, absolutely. Plus, he engaged, and this is the grossest part, in both post-mortem and anti-mortem sexual abuse and admitted to enjoying looking at the internal organs of his victims after disemboweling them and to have sometimes kept the severed heads of his victims as trophies, which he liked to talk to. Ugh, that is rough in the most extreme of ways. Mm. I mean, it's so horrendous. You wouldn't even see something that bleak put into a film, would you? I was all for the Gilles de Ray Joan of Arc biopic, but I don't think even the most out there horror movie would go there with that. No, it's definitely amongst the worst examples of depravity I've ever read about. And unlike the previous cases we've covered on episodes of Something Wicked, I don't think there's actually much doubt that he did almost everything he said to have done. Even the demon summoning. Well, we can doubt that if we like, but in terms of the murders and so on, there was corroboration, physical evidence, witness statements, 
Various attempts have been made to try and clear his name, including by Margaret Murray and Alastair Crowley. But really, this one seems like a genuine case of proper, full-on historical serial killer. What a vile man. And and do we know what happened to his occultist allies? Well, the two priests were arrested and kept in prison for years. Eventually, they were sentenced to various penances, including making formal apologies to the various lords they helped wrong. And then they were banished from France afterwards, but neither was executed. Like, they got away with it, basically. And what about the women, the what, terror? Yeah, they well, they both died in prison. It's generally agreed they hanged themselves in their cells while awaiting trial, while Gilles de Ray's cousins, the fellow lords who helped him recruit all these children, Gilles de Silet and Roger de Brickville, they both went on the run and were never arrested. What? Yep, they got away with it too. And then, essentially, over time, the macabre legends of what happened in those castles became local folklore. The Church of Innocence was pulled down, as was Mashkul. In fact, a number of the castles were knocked down, but it's generally accepted that the idea of Gilles de Ray, this mercurial, charming, but ultimately utterly psychopathic lord with chambers full of corpses, was the basis from which we get the legend of Bluebeard. I mean, in that story, which is from the 17th century, it was first written down by Charles Perrault. Yeah. The idea is that Bluebeard murders wife after wife after wife. It is. But I suppose, basically, that people over time twisted the tale away from DeRay abducting and murdering boys to make the story about the killing of wives instead. And I suppose 300 years of tellings and retellings will do that kind of thing. I guess. But I mean, considering how horrific the real story of Gilles DeRay is, people think of Bluebeard as one of the more macabre classic fairy tales but the truth is so much darker it is it's absolutely horrific and really in my mind it comes down to a combination of things firstly you have an incredibly rich boy raised to be a murderer then you have his career where he's praised for murdering and then after receiving all these honors and titles you have this decade of excess and debauchery where he uses all the capital he's acquired across his life to do the most depraved awful, lavish sequences of things, at the end of which he pays what I think is a pretty meagre price for his crimes. Absolutely wild. And speaks to the idea that often there's absolutely no justice. Mm. I mean, thank you, Martin. That was super interesting, if a bit disturbing. Well, it would be wrong to say my pleasure, but it's an important one to know about. And as ever, dear listener, if you would like extra content and aren't already a Patreon supporter, please consider signing up to our Patreon for $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast our patreon exclusive episode about the white stag went up last week and our film club episode about the company of wolves comes out next thursday both a bit more cheery than this episode definitely and we'll be back on monday for our penultimate episode of the series yeah my last one of series three and the second to last episode of our first tour around england's 39 historic counties yikers yikers indeed and that episode is all about Hertfordshire so looking forward to that devils ghosts outlaw giants it's all happening in that one in the meantime though while our serial murdering knight has been executed and yet still interred in a church over that way we'll go this way and remember don't whistle till you're out of the woods our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour and our logo is by Ollie James Dare The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written and produced by me, Martin Fawkes. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman 
such hounds, such hawks, and such lean men. We're down, dairy, 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 down, down. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.